We are continuing in our series um, called The Heroes of the Faith. And uh, as many of you know, I, I absolutely love the book of Hebrews, my favorite book of the Bible. Our text this morning is Hebrews 11, 20 to 22, three short verses. So many of us, and, and perhaps not too many of you in this room, but many of us in this country and in the church, uh, and perhaps our, our older people, which includes me, uh, we've developed some bad habits. And uh, that habit is trying to keep up with what's going on in the world, the, what we call the news. And I often wonder why we call it news, because most of it's not new. It's kind of the same thing over and over again every night. And, and understand me, we should not be ignorant about our world. We should not be ignorant of what's occurring in our world. But I think we fool ourselves if we think that by having the latest news at our fingertips, that somehow that makes us wiser just because we know what's going on. And the truth is that the sources of, that sell the news and we should remember that the news is being sold. It really is. Uh, those sources, whether they be liberal or conservative or even impartial, they want our attention. And they demand more and more of our time. And they may begin to even control our thinking. So I don't know, maybe some of you watch the news every night, maybe you watch it a couple times, maybe you listen to it uh, all day long, some people do that. Uh, we have our little devices and I've caught myself going to the news thing and always wanting to be connected to what's going on in the world. And you gain this appetite for like, ooh, what's going on, what's going on? And it's all at our fingertips. And I think that's dangerous for anyone. But I think it can really be dangerous for Christians because I think it can begin to destroy our faith. And I'm going to hopefully point that out. So I want to read the opening uh, few couple paragraphs of this little book by Ray Steadman. He's a preacher that I've admired for a long, long time. He's gone to be with the Lord. And he wrote a little book, a Bible commentary for laymen. Uh, it's called, What More Can God Say? Um, so listen to, and this was written, by the way, <laughs> in 1974. And it's amazing how pertinent it is still. Uh, just a couple paragraphs. I know it's not good to read from a book, but I'm going to challenge you to pay attention. Okay, listen. Some of us were gathered in a home discussing the uh, state of affairs in the world. And we commented on the fears, the tensions, the sense of futility that we find in so many circles these days. Sounds like today. Earlier, someone had read the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, where he speaks of the whole creation groaning and travailing together in bondage and futility stamped upon all those things. Still pertinent. In our discussion, the question arose, what can we do about this? As Christians, we know the answer to the world's problems, but how can we make the world believe the answer? Here it comes. Among us was a young Christian. Sometimes we need to listen to our youth. Among us was a young Christian who seemed considerably troubled by our discussion. With a deeply concerned look on his face, he said, why is this? Why doesn't the world believe what we have to say? And then he added, I think it's because so many Christians don't act like they believe it themselves. Ouch. Then he asked the logical but thorny question, how can we make Christians believe what they believe? Huh. Wow, that's a really good question. So that is the very theme of the book of Hebrews. 
how to make Christians believe, how to make Christians act like Christians. I love this phrase. This is what the world is waiting to see. I was with a neighbor. Uh, we were driving to Wheaton together just, uh, I believe it was Friday night, and uh, he's not a believer, but we've had some good discussions, and uh, he talked a lot about that, you know, that, that the world's waiting to see what Christians are going to do. And he says, and often Christians don't do the right thing, and, uh, and that disappoints the world. And so that's really pertinent, and here it is being talked about back in 1974. Uh, this, is, this is what the world is waiting to see and what the epistle was written to produce. It's addressed to a group of Jewish Christians, you know that, um, who had begun to drift, to lose their faith. They had lost all awareness of the relevance of their faith to the daily affairs of life. How do we do with that, connecting our faith to what's going on in the world, especially when we're so inundated with change and news and challenge and what's happening in our world. So they had begun to drift into outward formal religious performance while they lost the inner reality. Doubts were creeping into their hearts from some of the humanistic philosophies that abounded in the world of their day as they abound in the world of our day. Last sentence. Some of them were about to abandon their faith in Christ. So that's a great introduction, actually, to the, the book of Hebrews. Um, and I hope to this message that I believe that the Lord has given us for today. So do we believe what we believe? <laughs> then why don't we act on it? And remember, the world's waiting to see Christians act out their faith. So, what in the world does this have to do with our text today? Well, let's read Hebrews uh, 11, verses 20 to 22. You can stand for one more minute, and that's about how long it's going to take to read it. So, uh, just stand for recognizing God's word here. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So, Father... We thank you this morning for the emphasis of remembering what your son Jesus did on the cross for us, Lord. Uh, and I pray this morning that we will honor you, God, through Jesus and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the writer of Hebrews, and we've already heard it a couple times this morning, uh, we're not sure what her name was, um, a lot of people, and, and what, do, what do we mean by that? Some people actually think that uh, Priscilla may have been the author of Hebrews, and there's a good possibility that that's true, but none of us really know who the author was. But um, whoever it was, God spoke through them in the book of Hebrews. And so the writer of Hebrews reminds the readers of the supremacy of Christ, okay? Okay. Christ is supreme. Uh, <laughs> we know that, but he was writing to Jewish Christians. And what do you think Jewish people when, in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament time and even today, what was really important to Jews? Anybody know? I'm sorry? The law. So who wrote the law? I mean, who was the law given to? Moses. So... <laughs> the writer of Hebrews is reminding them that Jesus is supreme even to Moses, the writer of the law. So they were tempted, these Christians, to go back to the law, to, try, to go back to trying to be perfect and to do everything God uh, had told them to do. Because I think uh, 
they, they were challenged in a lot of ways. So the one who suffered for our sins, and that's Jesus because of the grace of God toward us, and I love that this was the scripture that was read this morning. I put it in, in here. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. I love that. And you know, that's a, <laughs> to the Jewish people that were listening to that, I wonder what the impact was for them. Because first when Jesus came, they doubted that he was the Messiah. And then when, <laughs> by faith, they realized, oh man, this man died and then rose again, and many people saw him and all the things that he did, this was the Messiah. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. So I, I love that about our Lord. He's our high priest. He understands our suffering and our temptation. And yet these readers who were suffering, you remember what it told us in, in chapter 10, they were suffering. How were they suffering? Well, some of them were imprisoned. Some of them had had their homes and their belongings taken away from them. Some were beheaded. Uh, there were all kinds of things that were happening to them. And so the challenge was, is, oh my goodness, do I really want to stay in this kind of faith? Is this, you know, is this worth it? And so they're thinking of leaving. And so the readers are beginning, it tells us in the scriptures, to drift away from their faith. And if you read through Hebrews, it has all these little words that say, oh my goodness, they're, they're, they're beginning to drift. It says they're beginning to neglect their faith. And I want us to think this morning, young people too, I want you to think this morning, do you neglect your faith? You know, do, do we neglect our faith? How do we neglect our faith? Because I think we're all challenged in that area to neglect, our, that we're possibly neglecting our faith. So the writer, in his wisdom, he reminds these Jewish people of a generation before them, way before them. And they knew the Bible. They knew it really well. So when he goes back to this generation, he's talking about a generational failure of faith. So do you know what generation I'm talking about? Some of you do. It's that generation uh, that was in the wilderness. <laughs> you remember what had happened. It was a generation that groaned because they were in captivity in Egypt. They were under tremendous bondage and, and uh, cruelty from the Pharaoh in Egypt. And they'd been there for 400 years, and they were groaning. I could just hear them, God, please release us. You know, I remember the promises of you gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and what has happened to them, Lord? Here we are, we're in bondage in Egypt. And, and I can hear them crying to the Lord, begging him. <laughs> and, and so God heard their prayers, we're told. He heard their prayers and he, he, he brought somebody to take them out of the, the land of Egypt. Who was that? Moses. And so Moses takes them out of the, uh, away from Egypt and towards the promised land. What if, now I'm envisioning them leaving the promised land. You know, they had to hurry up. You remember what had happened? They've got all these belongings. The Egyptians had literally given them <laughs> just about everything they could carry and take away. And they've been under bondage for 400 years and they're walking out of that place. I mean, just imagine that. The joy and weeping for joy and, oh my goodness, we've been here 400 years and God's going to send us to the promised land. I'm leaving this place. Uh, and and I, I think about that. And I remember when some of us first came to the Lord Jesus Christ, the excitement that we had in our lives. You know, when we left our Egypt <laughs> and we were walking towards the promised land. And I remember that excitement in my own life. So what in the world happened, you know? <laughs> he promised them the land and the seed. You know, all the people that have been preaching to us have been talking about the land and the seed. But I was taught it's the land, the seed, and the blessing. The seed is the people that will come after us. But the blessing of that seed, capital B, is Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, they were promised the land and the seed and the blessing, and that, that's Jesus. And we look back on that seed, 
like I've already said, we look back on his death, his resurrection, and now we look forward to his return. So what happened to that generation? Trouble began. You know, it's, it's funny. We have the promises of God. Think about the things that God has promised us in his word. He's promised us his presence, that he would walk with us, that we have his love. He's promised that we'll spend eternity with him. Uh, he's promised to meet our needs. But he's also promised us some trouble in life. And, you know, the Israelites, as soon as they got into the wilderness, they began to grumble and complain. Trouble came. And, and I want us to think about ourselves. You know, in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you know, do, do we grumble? Do we complain? You know, think about what they had seen in God. God led them. How did he lead them by the day? With a pillar of fire at night, wasn't it? What was the day? Smoke. So he, their pre, he had, they had God's presence. And when they began to run out of food, what did he send them? Manna. <laughs> Little flakes of sweet bread. I, I've always wanted to taste manna. Oh, my goodness. Wow. All that they could eat. And if you didn't finish it, throw it out, because tomorrow he's going to bring a fresh supply of bakery goods. You know, and then when they got to complaining, oh, man, this is just, I'm getting kind of tired of manna. I want some meat. He brought them quail, it says, until it was running out of their noses. And when they didn't have water, he did miracles so that they'd have water. And what about their shoes? What did it say about their sandals? They never wore out. So they had God's presence and provision, and he was meeting his promises, and yet they began to grumble and complain. And do we do that? Yeah, I mean, think about what we have. And yet, and I'm talking to me, man, when I was trying to prepare this thing, I broke down a number of times and said, Lord, that's me. That's me, grumbling, complaining. <laughs> I'm sure Tim Badal won't mind me sharing this. He said his father, Bill, who was a good friend of mine uh, many years, his father said to Tim, he says, you know, I've learned something as I'm getting older. He says, I recognize that I'm starting to grumble a lot more. And he said, I'm gonna, I want you, Tim, to hold me accountable and remind me. As an older man, sometimes somebody needs to remind me, hey, Dad, you're grumbling, and don't forget the goodness of God. And, man, that was really convicting to me to hear that, you know. Uh, grumbling and complaining as soon as trouble begins. You know what I think they were doing? I think they were listening to the news. I really do. Well, how was the news? People were talking to each other. <laughs> you remember when we were back in Egypt? We had leeks and onions and cucumbers and all those. That sounds disgusting to me, but that's, they, they were missing all those things. And, and they were listening to one another, and they began to grumble and complain because, first of all, it sinks into your mind what's said. And that's what happens with the news. It gets into your brain, everything that's going on. And then eventually it travels from your brain and starts to get down to your heart. That's what God, God's Word tells us <laughs> because it says that they began to harden their hearts. You know, look, just look back at Hebrews 4 just for a minute. Actually, it's in 3. Today... If you hear his voice, you know what? I want you to hear God's voice this morning, not mine. I really do. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. So when God brings trouble our way, challenges, it's tempting to have our hearts grow hard. And I think it's kind of like the way I look at it is uh, when something keeps pounding on me, it makes me hard. It hardens me. 
And, and if I don't keep my eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, I can get hardened by what goes through my mind. So I'm wanting to be more and more careful about what I listen to and how I listen to it and how it impacts me. Kathy and I have gotten into the habit of watching the 5.30 news. And you know, the 5.30 news, is, it's, it's a good news. They've got a world coverage, and it's awful. It's almost all awful, and then at the end, they have this little plug about something good that happened in the world, and I'm grateful for that. But it impacts me. It really does. And then we, at 9 o'clock, we may revisit the news again, and then it impacts me again. And I'm not saying don't watch it, but what does that do to your mind? And how does it impact your heart? And ultimately, what does it do to your faith? And here's what, the, what it says here. Their hearts began to harden. They rebelled against God. When testing came, they turned around and tested God, even though they'd seen his blessings for 40 years. And then eventually it says they went astray. Here's the saddest thing to me. It says, <laughs> they did not know God or his ways. Think about that. Do you know God? Okay. That, do you ever think about that? Do I really know God? Well, you know, in some sense, God's unknowable because he's so vast. And maybe when we get to eternity, we'll begin to know him more. But it's really sad when you think about this generation that said, they don't know my ways. You don't even know who I am, God says. And so I think he says that to us today in a lot of ways. You don't really know who I am, generation. And we're in danger, just like this generation. That's why we have God's word. <laughs> think about it. There was a generation in the wilderness. The writer of Hebrews is addressing these Hebrew Christians and it's been saved to address us. Are we in danger of having hardened hearts and rebelling and walking away from the Lord? Do we know who God is? <laughs> there were the daily devotional and uh, the, the daily bread today was from Hebrews. I couldn't believe that. And it was the first 10 verses of Hebrew, and it was about knowing God. And we know God through Jesus. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. What a good reminder. Yeah, I, I can know who God is as I look at Jesus Christ. So, God told this unbelieving and disobedient generation that they would not enter into his rest. That's the promised land. So how do we define rest, and how do I make that practical? And I've told this before to the church. I've got this acronym for rest, and you might want to write it down if, if, if you do those things, but... To me, when it's talking about God's rest, and I had been taught this, is the R means to relax from trying to work your way to God. <laughs> These Jewish people had the tendency to say, hey, you know what? If I just do X, Y, and Z, God will love me, and I'll know God, and he'll save me. That's working. You know this man, his name is Eric, that I was having this conversation with? He said to me, you know, the typical question from a non-Christian. He says, what about people that this, come to know Jesus on the deathbed? Oh, man, here comes this question again. You know, he says, that doesn't seem right to me. And I, you know, maybe the Lord gave me a little wisdom, and I said, there's a parable that Jesus taught. And in that parable, he talks about an owner who goes out and hires these day workers and the day workers come, and, uh, you know, there's some that start at 7.30 in the morning and work all the way to 4.30. And then at noon he gets another group because he needs a little more help. And then he goes out and gets a group around 3 o'clock and brings them. By the time they get there, it's 4, and they work till 4.30. And then the boss, the owner, decides he's going to pay them all the same wage. That's a picture of God. And what he's saying is... When he brings you to himself, <laughs> you know, he gives us all the same thing. Whether you've walked with him for 50 years or if you come to true grace and repentance on your deathbed, he gives us all the same thing. I really believe that's the interpretation of that parable. 
And I said to my friend, how could it be grace if the rule is, oh, well, you know what? You have to walk with Jesus for a while before you're saved. That wouldn't be grace, would it? No. It's grace is grace is grace, and that's what's so hard for us to understand. A gracious God can, the thief on the cross, <laughs> he looks at Jesus, he realizes this must be the Son of God. For some reason he realizes that, that's God. And he says, you know, <laughs> you know Jesus says this day you'll be with me in paradise because the man believes in who he is. Grace. So relax from trying to work your way into heaven. E is enjoy the promises of God. <laughs> you know, enjoy is one of those words. How many of you think of Christians as being real, real joyful? Now, I'm looking at your faces. I don't see a lot of joy. I'm just being honest now. Once in a while, Tom laughs, Dan's he's trying to fall asleep. You know, Carol smiles once in a while. And, and you know, uh, I wonder, I, I used to do devotions at Wheaton College at 7.30 in the morning, and you talk about a rough crowd, you know, all these grumpy old blue-collar workers like myself. <laughs> you're just sitting there and you're telling them about Jesus and you're all pumped up and you wonder, wow, joy? <laughs> enjoy. Christians ought to enjoy the promises of God. And Kathy, I'm speaking to myself here. You know that. Uh, I, I was convicted about this this week. Enjoy the promises of God. Enjoy what he's given us. Enjoy what he's told us our future is. And the second thing, or third thing, is the S in rest is satisfaction. The word satisfaction, to me, talks about contentment. Christians, you need to be satisfied. God's got a call on your life. Reggie, you know God's got a call on your life? Do you know that? Yeah, he does. And you need to be satisfied with the fact, hey, guess what? God's got a call on my life. He's called me to be part of this family here in America. He's got a great plan for me. I'm happy, contented, and satisfied with what God has called me to do. And, and you know what? We're often not satisfied. We're often discontented with who I am. I'm not, I don't have what that person has, or, you know what, I'd like to be doing this. But God wants us to be satisfied with who he has called us to be, to be in his family. Woo, I'm in the family of God. There's something to be satisfied with. And the last thing is the T is trust. Trust the promises of God. Trust. What brings trust? We tell the men in the prison, what, what do we tell them? brings trust there we go he's been listening the black wall we tell the guys in the prison you know what you knocked all your walls down your wife and your kids they don't trust you anymore because you you knocked all the walls down how do you build the trust back one block at a time I, I'm gonna call you you say to your child you call them you follow through on your commitment. That's one block of trust. And you keep building a wall and keep building a wall until you build it back up again. And every once in a while you knock it down a little bit, you've got to rebuild it. When we know God, we look back and see God follows through on all of his promises. So we need to learn to trust the promises of God. So we come to a place where it tells us in Hebrews that we should fear. <laughs> That's interesting. Hebrews 4 and verse 1. And uh, listen to what it says. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, and we have that promise of entering God's rest, he's told us that we do, while it still stands, let us fear lest any of us, any of you, should seem to have failed to reach it. I think this is an important thing, entering into God's rest. I really do. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, we should fear. All right, I want you to, you know, someday I'm going to preach a message on salad. How many of you guys like salads? What's the main component in salad? 
let us. So I want you to listen to the let us this morning, okay? Let us. There's a bunch of them. The whole Bi In fact, I went through the Bible and looked at all the lettuces. There's like a hundred of them. And Hebrews has got about 20 of them. So let us, what does it say there? It says, let us fear, lest any of us should fail to reach the rest. So that's a let us. Uh, it's an important thing. And Hebrews 3, up above there in verse 17, says, And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Wow. Lest we fall. So there is a danger for Christians to fall in the wilderness. Now, some people say, does that mean they're losing their salvation? I don't know. All I know is that they died in the wilderness and they didn't really get God's promises. And even if all, they're still believers, they still failed to reach what God had for them, the potential that God had for them. And it was because of their lack of faith and their lack of disobedience. So let us fear lest we fall. And finally, the, the most important thing is there was a lack of faith. Hebrews verse uh, chapter 4 and verse 2. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now I'm going put, to put that in the NIV because the NIV makes that a lot simpler. Here's what it says in the New International Version. For we also have had the gospel preached to us. Have you had the gospel preached to you? You guys? Okay. That's us too. We've had the gospel preached to us. Just as they did. He's talking about that generation. How in the world was the gospel preached to that generation that was in the wilderness? Well, if you search your Bible, it talks about Jesus accompanying them in the wilderness and uh, they were pointing, uh, everything was pointing towards Jesus. So they had the good news, the promise of rest, and that was their gospel. So it goes on and it says uh, in the NIV, let me get back there if I can. Uh, but the message that they heard in the wilderness was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Okay. So when God gives us the gospel, the good news, if it's not combined with faith, it's meaningless. So when God gives us promises and we don't combine it with faith, I think it's meaningless for us. So this is a severe warning that when God tells us he's going to do something, when God has said, I've given you this, that, and this, we need to combine that with faith. We need to have faith in what God has promised. Well, the wilderness generation, they didn't make the hall of fame of faith. We know that. Uh, yet Isaac and Jacob and Joseph did. So why in the world did Isaac and Jacob and Joseph make the hall of fame of faith and these people uh, in the wilderness did not? Do any of you ever think, well, you know what? I'm not like Isaac or Jacob or Joseph, so how in the world can I be in the hall of fame of faith? Yeah, I, I've thought about that. Well, these people were, you know, they're heroes of the faith. You know what? I don't think, you know, I like the title, Heroes of the Faith, but I think actually this applies to every one of us, not just the heroes, okay? So I want you to hear this this morning. Just you know what, we're not going to go back to the book of Genesis and go through the whole book of Genesis. That's not the purpose of these messages. But listen to a couple of things about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and then tell me what kind of heroes they are. Uh, you know, were they better people than us? Were they really good? Did they have more faith? Uh, just think about it for a couple minutes. When Isaac played favorites. He had a favorite child. That's always a dangerous thing. So that's not good for parents. Uh, Esau was his favorite. He was a hunter. He was a macho man. And for some reason, Isaac liked that. And then when Isaac missed the family blessing, 
You know, I, uh, Esau, Esau missed the family blessing. When he, when he uh, missed that blessing, Esau, to get back at his father and mother, he ran off with some uh, heathen women, which God had said, do not marry the Canaanites. He said, all right, I'll show you. I'm going to go marry some Canaanite women. And that brought great grief to the family of Isaac and Rebekah. And you know what? There was hatred between the brothers. If you know a family where siblings don't, don't love one another, they hate each other, what a sad, sad thing that is for parents. So Isaac's life wasn't really perfect. <laughs> and Isaac, the great man that he was, the great man of faith, he lied about his wife. He said, that's my sister. And he put her into danger so that he wouldn't get killed. He was following in his uh, father's footsteps there. But even in the middle of family dysfunction, and towards the end of his life, it says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. So what about Jacob? Jacob was a schemer and a cheater. <laughs> he cheated his brother out of that uh, family blessing. And then he was cheated by Laban, who was a better cheater. <laughs> he wanted to marry Rachel, <laughs> but he wound up with Leah after working seven years for what he thought was Rachel. Huh. And then when he worked another seven years, and finally he married his true love, Rachel, she was barren. She couldn't have children. And then he followed in his grandpa's footsteps. Uh, he had a child with the servant of Rachel. That's dysfunction. And he lives in fear of his uncle Laban and his brother Esau. And these are, these are our heroes of the faith. Uh, and then he hears that his son Joseph, the rest of his sons tell him, you know what, Joseph was killed by a wild animal. So he lost his favorite son. Wow. But yet, with all that dysfunction, it says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And what about Joseph? There's not a lot of bad things about Joseph. I think he was a little spoiled. I really do, because he was his father's favorite. Uh, he was a dreamer. But his brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery. And then Potiphar's wife gets him into trouble and he goes to prison. He spends all that time in prison. And he lives in Egypt away from the family and the country that he loves. He didn't do that by choice. That's where God placed him. That was God's calling on his life. <laughs> and so it says, though, about him in spite of the circumstances, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. <laughs> he told them, hey, guess what? You're going to leave this country sometime. Don't leave my bones here. I don't want them left in Egypt. Take them with me, and I've got a place where you can put them in the promised land. So I want you to hear this statement. I didn't make this statement. There was a guy named Bill that made this statement that was at our preaching meeting. He's a, I don't know him very well, but I thought, wow, that's a good statement. This kind of sums up what I want the crux of this message to be. Because of grace, that's God's promises that come true through Jesus. Because of grace, sin, dysfunction, mistakes, or circumstances do not have to be the final word. Isn't that wonderful? Think about your own families with the dysfunction, the challenges in our family, the sin, the circumstances. That does not have to be the final word. <laughs> I mean, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, their final words were words of faith, even after all the troubles and the trials that they experienced. They experienced the presence of God. Do you ever experience the presence of God in your life? Come on, somebody shake your head, yes, help me, help me out here, do you? You know I'm goofy, so 
I always see it in nature, you know, and, and I forget what I saw the other day, and I just, oh, wow, oh, I know what it was. I was riding my bike, and there was a, I don't know what kind of a bird it is. It's got really long legs and a neck that's about that big around, and it's about that long, and he's all white, some kind of a stork, crane, all white crane, and I thought, I, the first thing that popped in my head is, well, God, you're really amazing. You're just amazing. And, and I felt his presence, actually, as I was riding my bike. That was, yeah, that was yesterday morning, Saturday morning. So pretty hot out. Um, so I, they, Jacob and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, they experienced the presence of God. But at other times, they wondered, where in the world is God? <laughs> Look at my family. Look at what's going on. And they wondered about the promises. Where's those promises that you had, God? <laughs> and yet, their final words were words of faith. They had enduring faith. And that's the lesson for today. They had enduring faith. They looked forward to God's promises. I think they saw things optimistically because they trusted God. And the glass was half full instead of half empty. That's the kind of people they were. They finished strong. So how do we finish well is real briefly. How in the world do we finish the race, our walk through the wilderness? How do we do it well? A couple of things here. Fight for your faith. God gave us some weapons. This is how we fight for our faith. Pray confidently. Hebrews 4 and verse 16 tells us, Listen to this. It says, let us, there we go, there's a salad, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's, I think, my favorite verse maybe in the whole Bible is it's talking about because Jesus was tempted in every way that we're tempted. He faced all the things that we faced yet without sin. Go boldly with confidence to the throne of grace and ask for mercy. That's one of the weapons that we have in order to fight for our faith. The, the next one is to praise continually. Look at Hebrews 13 and verse 15. Huh. Through him, then, let us, <laughs> let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. There's another way that we fight for our faith is by continually praising the Lord. Oh, and this is where I really got convicted was on the prayer and the praising. Wow. Man, Lord, help me. Help me to eat that salad. Man, let us, let us pray confidently through Jesus. Let us praise continually through Jesus. That's what this is all pointing to. And then there's one other thing, and it's not from Hebrews just go back a couple books to 2 Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's another weapon that God has given us. We present ourselves handing, handling correctly the word of truth. How do you handle the word of truth? correctly, God's word? What does the word of God point to? Points to Jesus. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It's the scriptures that point to me. So when you're handling the word of truth rightly, you're always pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's another weapon that we have. And then finally, and this was talked about already this morning in the reading of the scripture. The people of God are meant to meet together. How many of you get discouraged when you don't see the, the people of God in the house of God? Let's be honest. Yeah, almost every hand in here is up. It's really discouraging to not see the people of God come together and worship. And that's why... <laughs> 
Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Listen to what it says here. You know what it says. It says in verse 24, and let us, more salad, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And here's how you do it. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but rather encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that day is a capital D because it's the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you see that day drawing near. You know, as we listen to what's going on in our world, the craziness, it ought to make us want to be together with the people of God and encouraging one another all the more as that day approaches, and that day does approach. That's the one thing that we know from watching and listening to the news. Meet together. All right, one thing to finish. Titus, I need you up here, buddy. Come on. All right, Bo. You know, Titus has run in some relays, haven't you? What kind of relays? Speak a little. Four by 200 and four by 400. And what is it that you pass on to one another? A baton. A baton. Boy, I wish I had a baton. Let me check in this bag and see. Bag of tricks here. Ha! Look at it. There's a baton in there. Can you believe that? Now, I want you to get over here, and I want you to strike the pose that you would be waiting for me. You're going to run that way, okay? And I want you to be in the pose that, you see, I'm the, I'm the leadoff guy because I run it in under, under 10 flat. This is the 4 by 100, so I, I get the, the first leg. And you're in the second leg, and I'm going to, what am I going to do? Okay, and how's your hand going to be? All right, strike that pose. And here I come. Anybody got a watch they can time this with? Okay. <laughs> Here I come, flying down, flying down, and what do I do? I put that, boom, right into your hand, and run, go, all right. Now, there's a couple things that we can learn from this. That was great, and you know what? That's yours to keep. Yeah, it was very expensive. <laughs> Thank you for helping me. Here's the picture that I want us to see. <laughs> the runner in a race like that, when he's, he's not really just standing there, he's got to get some momentum. He's already moving. He's taking off at a pretty good pace, and he's got his hand back here like this, and I have to slap that thing in there so he knows it's there, and he grabs firmly onto that baton, and then he takes off. What a picture that is. Here's what we need to learn. We need to run a straight path. What would happen, think about it in the relays, what would happen if you ran out of your lane or you started going all over this way? What happens? You get disqualified. You could bump into somebody and knock them over. You go out of the lane, you're disqualified. And, and frankly, we all know that the, the, the uh, closest distance between two points is a straight line. So God's word tells us that we need to have a straight path, that we need to walk straight, to run straight. Hebrews 10 and verse 23, let's look at what it says here. Oh, there's another lettuce there, imagine that. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In some versions it says unswervingly, so you're not swerving all over the place. Huh. Hold fast to your confession. Don't be wobbling around and going all off into the world and checking out things. Go straight down that path. For he who promised Jesus, he is faithful. That's a great verse. Have straight path. And then we need a strong grip. I'm really glad that we didn't drop that baton. If you drop the baton in a race, what happens? You're disqualified. Yeah. So it's important. I hope you see the picture in here. One generation passing the baton to another generation. That generation is already moving because you've already trained them and given them some instruction. They're moving and they're going in a straight path. But I've handed off the baton to the next 
generation. That's the picture. That's what Isaac, that's what <laughs> uh, Jacob, and that's what Joseph, that's what they did. So, <laughs> a strong grip in Hebrews 4, 14 says, I'm getting there since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You know, Titus, that's a picture of what your dad's doing for you and your mom. They're passing their faith on to you, and they want you to hold fast onto that faith. That's something that Kathy and I pray for this flock every Sunday morning, is that the children will walk in the truth and walk in the faith and that they'll hold fast to their faith. That's what we do as parents and older people. And finally, steadfastly pass it on. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. Looking forward to the promised Messiah, Jesus. I've used way more time than I thought I was going to use. I apologize, but um, my grandpa Edmund, and I won't make this long, uh, didn't have a father, so he was called nasty names in England where he was born. And he worked in coal mines when he was 11, 12, 13 years old just to have enough money for he and his mom to eat food. Uh, eventually they came to the United States and as soon as he got here, Great Britain said, you've got to come back and fight in World War I. And he was not a believer. Um, he got injured with mustard gas in World War I. And then he came back to the United States after World War I and he came to know Jesus Christ. And he was a faithful man. He passed on his faith to his whole family, my aunt, my uncle, my mother. And uh, he helped to pass the faith on to my, uh, my own father, who in his own way tried to pass on the faith. But another person that he passed faith on to was a, a family, the Pratt family. <laughs> and, and it's amazing to Kathy and I that when we needed to know who the Lord Jesus was, there was a family that came along and, and led us to the Lord, and it was the Pratt family. And they'd been impacted by my own grandfather, who had been dead for years. He died at age 54 because of uh, probably working in the coal mines and being burned by mustard gas. But he was a faithful man, and I hear stories of him. That's what we want to be. That's what the lesson this morning is, is at the end of our life, we want to pass the faith on. We want to finish well.